know when these are going to end these days, so <laughs> I just hang back. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Clark, and a very warm welcome to Brooklands this evening. And as ever, thank you for being here and supporting the Trust. I have to admit that my knowledge of the water speed record probably starts and finishes with Donald Campbell and his tragic accident on Coniston Water on the 4th of January 1967, and I'm sure there's a whole lot of things that have gone on since then. But we're going to cast our net wide tonight, and I think we're going to learn a lot more about the water speed record. So will you please give a very warm welcome to our guest speaker this evening, Nigel McKnight. Hello, everybody. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. yeah. back, I suppose. If you couldn't hear me, then you wouldn't know what I just said anyway, would you? <laughs> well, um, my mum's not seen that picture, but if she had, that would be her favourite picture. I like to think anyway, even though I've got a younger brother. Um, I'm here to talk about the water speed record, and all the PR for the uh, event has talked about that, which is the most important thing. Um, the history of the record and um, our own project which some of you might have heard of which is the Quicksilver project which is that if you've not checked out the website and don't know about it I'd recommend you at least have a look at that um, and I'm also going to talk a little bit about my own background of how I got involved in the water speed record I lead the team Quicksilver for my sins I had the idea that we should try and get the record back for Britain because we've not held it since six months after Donald Campbell was killed the Americans got it off him quite quickly after his death and then they, they held it 10 years and then the Australians got it for the first time and they've held it ever since so we'd like to try and get it back. Um, so a little bit about my own background as well, mainly just to provide a bit of variety into the talk uh, and not just talk about boats but also uh, to try and show how I got involved in it and I think there's something for nearly everybody in the talk because um, it covers quite a bit of scope when I took in a bit about my own career uh, as an author and publisher. Um, John Cobb, I like to put the picture up at the beginning sometimes because particularly here at Brooklands you all know the name of John Cobb and in fact a lot of the names in the water speed record history will be familiar to you from motor racing because these people went from motor racing into the land speed record and from that into the water speed record so a lot of the names will be familiar to you, not just Sir Malcolm Campbell uh, but John Cobb, Henry Seagrave and Kay Don all people who've been involved with motor racing and the land speed record and got involved in the water speed record. And it's great to be here at Brooklands. I came down to have a look at another couple of speakers, one this year and one last year, to find out what it's all about down here. And it's a great place to be, um, very much the centre of history where the great record breakers and racing drivers have been, and where great engineers like Barnes Wallace worked. And also, don't forget, just up the road on St George's Hill, at a house called Kenwood um, is where John Lennon lived and wrote a lot of the really famous Beatles songs, uh, I Am a Walrus and many others. So I think of this area right here, there's a few hundred yards that we're on here, as being really one of the crucibles of the 20, 20th century for engineering and uh, create, creativity. Um, I had the idea of trying to get the record back for Britain, you know, be careful what you wish for because it's been a difficult project but we've come too far to stop. Uh, we have a great team of volunteers from different walks of life in engineering right through to the people who do our website and uh, we've come too far to stop. Uh, I'm leading the team and I'll try and give you some of the story of that 
uh, and I'll be driving the boat when it's finished, which is called Quicksilver, and that's what it is, a new boat for a new generation inspired by the past. We're aiming for you know, well over 300 miles an hour, heading towards theoretically 400 miles an hour. I'd like to pay tribute to one of our volunteers who's here tonight, Jeremy Bartley. Jeremy's helping me with uh, some of the stuff at the end. We're going to sell some books, I hope, and raise some funds for the project. And I'll tell you about our supporters club as well. Jeremy got here this afternoon at one o'clock. I got here at five past one. And when I told the guy at the gate that I'm the speaker tonight, he said, you're the second person who has said that. He was very polite. <laughs> and I said, was the other chap called Jeremy Bartley? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'm, I'm his ventriloquist dummy. He operates me. <laughs> anyway, Jeremy's in the front row. God bless you, Jeremy, for your loyalty and kindness since 2005 in helping me with uh, the project and many others who've helped. Uh, everyone knows who this guy is, almost anybody who's, you know, over 10 or 12 years old, I hope, or 15 years old. Uh, Donald Campbell, of course, uh, died at 46. Um, he packed a lot into those years and, um, you know, sadly, he's most well known for his tragic accident, as Steve said. But, you know, he was a legend already. You know, he'd broken the water speed record, not once, but an unprecedented seven consecutive times. Starting in 1955, he went faster and faster over the years to keep the record out of reach of the Americans because they're always snapping at his heels. And as I said, within six months of Donna being killed, uh, 12 years after his first record, the Americans got the record off him. So it vindicated the fact that he was going faster and faster. Um, he broke the mold because he had no previous experience. All the other people in the water speed record had been powerboat racers, or most of them had been top racing drivers and land speed record holders. He was a guy with no experience at all. He just happened to be the son of Sir Malcolm Campbell. And he broke the ice for people like Richard Noble, who, you know, Richard, with the greatest respect, was a steel salesman for GKN. And he came in and broke the land speed record at over 600 miles an hour. Donald broke the ice, he broke the mould and, and said you didn't have to be a famous racing driver or powerboat star to break a speed record. Uh, sadly, he was killed in 1967. He grew up as the son of a famous father. You all know about Sir Malcolm Campbell, fabulously rich diamond merchant. He had the great idea as well of insuring newspapers against libel, which no one had done before, so he made a lot of money out of insurance. He was from the swashbuckling era when he was younger. He went to remote Pacific Islands searching for buried treasure, shooting crocodiles and things when that was fashionable. Um, he was a pretty overbearing and not altogether likable person, I think. Uh, but Donald worshipped him, but he was a very hard, hard guy on Donald. And um, he didn't want Donald to follow in his footsteps. He wanted him to be something in the city. But when Malcolm died, relatively young of natural causes, uh, like smoking, <laughs> um, you know, basically... Um, Donald took over where his father left off, and he took over from his father when his dad died. Donald growing up in the father, shadow of a famous father, but he emerged from his father's shadow after his father's death and became a personality and a legend in his own right. And he broke the record on water an unprecedented seven consecutive times. And that's one of my favorite pictures of Donald. 1964, the very last day of 1964, with very few minutes of sunlight remaining, he achieved his seventh water speed record in Australia. Why that was important to him to be, do it before the year ended is that several months earlier in July, with the Bluebird car, he'd broken the land speed record. And thus, he became the only man in history to break the land speed record and the water speed record in the same year. And that's an achievement that I'm sure will never be equaled again. 
because the scale of these projects then and particularly now is enormous and to do land and water and have a car and a boat on a record-breaking pitch and have the finance and have the team and have the machines working and the environment there to do it was utterly extraordinary. Uh, sadly, it was Donald's crowning achievement, the double. He was killed just over two years later. I'll just mention a bit about the car. I'm sure Don Wales and people like that have told you all about the car, but worth mentioning, when this car was originally built in 1960 by the Rubri Owen Group, of course, who are the owners of uh, BRM, so there is a motor racing connection. The Rubri Owen Group that owned BRM and many other companies um, built this car for Donald. It cost a million pounds in 1960. You can imagine what it would be money today to spend. Undoubtedly the most advanced um, automobile in the world at that time. And in fact, Adrian Newey voted this car uh, his favourite car of all time and the car that he felt was the most advanced car of all time. Four-wheel drive, fired by a uh, Bristol Sidley Proteus gas turbine engine from the Britannia aircraft. It had two gearboxes, spiral ge bevel gearboxes, one at the front and one at the back. The front one drove the front wheels, the rear ones uh, drew, drove the rear wheels. It had air brakes. Uh, it had a lot of technology on board. It had a head-up display like an aircraft. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on Donald by 1964. Uh, the lesson learned from this, never having a re reserve driver in record-breaking because if you're struggling with it, all the press and everybody will say, well, you're not really qualified. You should have your reserve driver. He's a racing driver. Uh, you're not. Uh, and I think the lesson that I certainly learned from this, never have a reserve driver. Creates a lot of political problems. You have a guy driving it, and if you can't do it, well, you go back and do a rethink. But don't have another guy shadding you. Don't have an understudy in record-breaking. I always like to start my talk with a short film that we made. It's not straight off uh, Sky or anything. We made it specially. Uh, a guy called David Delara, a very good friend of mine, made this film with my help. Uh, I storyboarded it, and he sort of put it all together and made it happen. It's a little tribute. It's only three and a half minutes, so don't worry. Uh, it's uh, a tribute to these two great men who inspired me in my life and in this project, Quicksilver, Sir Malcolm Campbell and his son, Donald Campbell, with their legendary Bluebird cars and boats. No sound, never mind. No, we've got a sound issue, never mind. I'm acting over it. Anyway, if you can imagine lots of stirring music, and it's always a bit of a problem when you switch laptops, but I think we've done a great job on the audiovisual, but just missing the sound. You're not missing much, it's just a bit of rousing music. You get the idea, 1922, the Bluebird story starting with a racing car called Bluebird, and it quickly became not only racing cars, but record-breaking cars. Uh, Malcolm broke the record on, on land, I think, nine times, and then turned to the water speed record towards the end of his life, and... He actually set four records in the run-up to the Second World War. Um, he left the record at 141 miles an hour by 1939. And then the war came along. After the war, he converted Bluebird to jet power, which you see here, but it handled atrociously. It was porpoising. It wasn't stable. So Malcolm's health was failing. His eyesight was failing, and generally he wasn't in good shape. And really, the thing was a bit of a flop. But it was the first ever jet-powered boat. When he passed away of natural causes, uh, New Year's Eve, 1948 into 1949, Donald decided to take over, to keep the record out of reach of the Americans. And, but he had a lot of bad luck with the, with the boat. He converted it back to propeller-driven form, tested it in different forms, didn't get the record over the next three or four years. The Americans got it off us. 
Um, but then Donald bounced back with the new boat, Bluebird, designed by the Norris brothers, Ken Norris and Lewis Norris. And here it is, the boat that he's really famous for, Bluebird K7, uh, launched in 1955. There's the Norris brothers, Ken on the left and uh, Lewis on the right. And over that period, 1955 to 1964, he set these seven consecutive water speed records. And some people say, well, he did it only to get more and more money because he got paid every time he bought the record, he got paid by, um, to, he got a trophy and a big check for five grand from Sir Billy Butlin. But I don't think it's that simple. I mean, every time he did it, he was risking his life. Every time he did it, he was going faster than anyone's gone before. So I don't think anyone should take away and say, well, it was only for the money because it wasn't. I'm sure it wasn't. Anyway, 1964, the culmination got the uh, water speed record for the seventh time, getting up, what, 276 miles an hour just before the year ended. Got the double. That's uh, Donald's wife, Tonya. And uh, that's the double four months earlier in July. Bluebird car that's going through Adelaide. You know, treated to a hero's welcome there. Brought the boat back to the car, back to England and the boat. Was in the doldrums for a while. And he made this big bid to try and break 300 in 1967 with the boat re-engined with a more powerful engine and there was a different weight distribution. Some other modifications had a big tail fin on the back. And he just was dogged with a lot of problems over those nine weeks. The press was on his back, running out of money. Marriage was struggling. Money was running out. And, um, you know, sadly he had his accident. And I don't speculate about what happened. I mean, I'm more interested in uh, the design of the boat and what we could do to make a better design. I'm not that interested in uh, the detail of what happened. Uh, and neither was, well, Ken Norris was. But at the end of the day, we were more interested with our new boat of how can we make a better design. So... Um, that's the Bluebird legend, the dynasty, 45 years of the Campbells and the Bluebirds that forged a legend that still exists today. And a lot of people remember the Campbells and a key part of British culture. Now, when Donna was killed in 1967, I'm sure most of you remember that. It's one of those iconic moments of the 1960s. A lot of people remember where they were on that day. I certainly remember it. Uh, we would move from the northeast of England, where I was born. We moved down to Preston in Lancashire. So I was only 40 miles away from where the accident happened. It felt like a local event. And I remember this was the 4th of January. We're still on school holidays for Christmas. Playing with Skelectric when the reports started coming through that this accident had happened on the BBC radio. And in the first few minutes and hours, they thought Donald might still be found alive. But of course, we now realise there's no way that Donald could have survived such an enormous impact with the water. Like you, I remember the next day, the sensational newspaper headlines and the spectacular pictures of Bluebird lifting off the surface of the lake. It made an indelible impression on nearly everybody in the United Kingdom and further afield at that time, and it certainly made an indelible impression on me as a young, impressionable 11-year-old old lad. Now, it wasn't a bad time to be living in Preston, uh, changing the tone a little bit. We came runner-up in the FA Cup final. We did get beaten by West Ham, but we did pretty well for a small town in Lancashire to get to the FA Cup final. But the best thing about living in Preston in those days, in the 60s, was that these wonderful aircraft were being built there, the English Electric Lightning, the last all-British fighter aircraft. And as we as a family lived less than a mile away from the end of the main runway, where these aircraft were test-flown prior to delivery to squadrons. And there were a constant presence in the sky above the school and the house where I lived and brought up. And in those days, he used to break the sound barrier over land. It wasn't banned. So every day, you hear the windows reverberating and the bang, the sonic boom. And this was part of daily life. And I think a pattern, a seed was planted in my mind at this time, although I didn't realise it at the time, for a passion for engineering. 
And that's something that I've followed for the rest of my life. But I put it down in retrospect to growing up in an age of heroes, of Scott of the Antarctic and all these wonderful uh, heroes of the past, Donald Campbell and others, but also the presence of these extraordinary aircraft in the sky where I was being brought up. You just couldn't get away from them. They were literally uh, sometimes only 100 feet away from you, and it was just a constant presence. Now, we made another move as a family. We kept moving around with my dad's work as he got promoted. We moved up to Glasgow a few weeks after Donald died. We had five years in Preston, moved up to Glasgow. And it was there that I really realised I'd been bitten by the aviation bug. And that was my first way into engineering, although I'm not actually an engineer. I'm an engineering enthusiast. Um, working class lads didn't get chances to fly in those days. There was no jetting off on holiday to Spain or anywhere else for my kind of family. Um, I didn't do very well at school, so I was never going to be an RAF fighter pilot, which I thought I was going to be, uh, but I was, I was never going to be good at, at maths and stuff. I was pretty crummy at school. Uh, we moved around a lot as a family and um, a few other things that just really held me back. Um, but if I joined the Air Training Corps, I saw the Junior Royal Air Force or a Boy Scouts for the Sky, it was a chance to get close to aviation and aircraft. You learn to map read as well, aircraft recognition, outward bound stuff, learn to sail, of all things, but the best thing is you've got to do some flying. Not in ordinary planes, but in RAF planes with the RAF rounders on the wings. So real, real flying with a parachute on your back, fabulous. And you had the parades on a Friday night and Sunday afternoon. You got in uniform, you learned how to polish your boots, and you got into this world. And I did at 13, which is the minimum age to join the Air Training Corps, and got thoroughly engrossed in the world of aviation as an aircraft spotter, really, as an enthusiast at school, obviously 13 years of age. That picture was taken uh, that year when I was 13, 1969. My first time away from home, the highlight of the ATC year was that you went away for a whole week to an RAF camp and lived on an RAF camp for a week and learned about life with the RAF, which is a life that many of us wanted to be part of. And we went all the way down from uh, Glasgow to RAF Cosford in Shropshire, and there I made my first flight in a de Havilland chipmunk of the Royal Air Force. A wonderful experience. And it was a very big week in my own little world. But in the big, week out, the big world out there, it was also a big week. It was the same week that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the surface of the moon with Apollo 11. Now, I probably suffered a bit from Walter Mitty uh, syndrome, but I also was ambitious. I was desperately keen to get more involved in aviation. I didn't really know where the boundaries lay, and I wasn't uh, clearly happy enough to be just an air cadet and an aircraft enthusiast and go aircraft spotting. I discovered that if you could write little news stories for magazines like Aircraft Illustrated, if you can remember that, it's still going. It's public, it was published out of Shepparton in those days. Um, if you wrote little news stories for aircraft magazines, things that you'd seen when you were out aircraft spotting, if they got published, you got your name in print in the back of the magazine. Didn't get any money. But I learned that if you get your name in print a few times and you do a bit of blagging, which I did a, quite a lot of blagging, a little white lies, there was no other way I was going to get in, uh, you could actually get one of these things, a press pass. It looks enormous. I nearly wore it tonight with my jacket. It's about this size. It's a press pass. Um, you, can, you could then go to an air display and then you get ushered under the barrier and instead of being a member of the public, you're right where the aircraft are. And, you know, that's all it took was some blagging and getting my name in print a few times, being able to show that I was a published author. You didn't have to say that your bit was this, this big at the back. And um, 
I remember the first air display. This is actually my first press pass I found the other day. 16th of September 1972. Uh, I just turned 17. That was the first magazine I had an article published in, a little story, a little piece. I was uh, just turned 16. So I started quite young. And anyway, ushered through to the other side of the barrier. And I remember you used to get a little luncheon voucher when you were press. And you were ushered into this uh, building at lunchtime, this marquee. And there we're sitting down. Uh, at the table was all the red arrows in the red overalls. So suddenly, this, uh, I was a cog, you know, an aircraft spotter, a little spotty, um, you know, teenager, still at school, air cadet, uh, but in a civilian, trying to look more mature, Harris Tweed jacket, and going in with a press pass, and there's the red arrows, and I'm right among, among it all. And this was really the beginning of something, which was, I found that, Avi you know, by writing about aviation, I could become part of the world of aviation, because no way I was going to get in any other way. Now, while I was still at school, I was still blagging, but still getting things published, little things, I managed to get myself some flights with these guys, the Blue Eagles, sort of the Army's equivalent of the Red Arrows, and I got myself some flights with the Rothmans aerobatic team, if you remember them, the sort of civilian Red Arrows, and pretty hairy flying in the Pitts S2A uh, with the British aerobatic champion, uh, Neil, um, Neil, um, Neil, Neil Williams. So we got some extreme flying uh, in uh, when I was literally still at school, and all through, you know, being a writer, you know, except I wasn't. Uh, still at school. Anyway, little distraction, which I'm going to come back to in a minute, because it's part of the story. We made our last move as a family after six years in Glasgow. We moved down to uh, Nottinghamshire, and cutting a long story short, I got to know this guy on the right, a chap called Leo Villa. Uh, he lived in Rygate, actually, down here. And uh, I won't bore you with the story how I got to meet him, but I met Leo Villa. And full of passion and full of a dream and full of the Walter Mitty uh, mentality at the age of, what was I, 18, if that, I had the idea that I could restart the Bluebird project and take over where Donald Campbell left off. I thought that just having the dream and the passion which I had would be enough. I didn't realise you had to have a lot of money. And, you know, a Leo I got to know. I didn't tell him I was only 18. I told him I was 23. And I hinted that there was a large family fortune in the background that would fund this grand endeavour. Uh, but actually, at that point in my life, I was actually sweeping floors at Woolworths. Uh, it wasn't a, a Saturday job. That was my full-time job. I got four O-levels and nothing else. Um, and I got to know Leo. Leo introduced me to Ken Norris, the Bluebird designer. And I did try for about 18 months in my spare time to get this project going. When Donald was killed, he wanted to try and get the land speed record back because the Americans got it off him with the jet cars. Uh, Craig Breedlove and Art Harfons. He wanted to get it back with this rocket-propelled supersonic car. I realised after about 18 months that I really was a boy trying to do a man's job. I was in way over my head. Blagging would only get you so far. Passion would only get you so far. Dreams aren't enough. And I didn't have any of the real attributes that you really needed, apart from enthusiasm, to do this sort of project. And I quit the project. It left a very bitter taste in my mouth because no one likes to fail. But I quit trying to get the land speed record. I was all of 19 when I quit. What I did do then, though, I did take up motor racing. I took up Formula Ford. I thought, if I'm going to drive a supersonic car, I better learn to drive a racing car. So I, it did get me seven years. The next seven years, I really got into motor racing and karting and Formula Ford. Anyway, a little distraction. Um, I don't know if any of you remember Speed and Power magazine, weekly magazine for juveniles. There's nothing like this now. Sort of teenage kids, mainly lads. It was a gift from heaven for me because... I was able to approach the editor of Speed and Power, Ken Roscoe, and I told him what we're doing. We're working on this land speed record project, and we'd like to stoke up some interest behind the scenes. Uh, can, can I write an article about uh, Bluebird? Yeah, wow, you're in with Ken Norris. You must be somebody. 
I wasn't, I was nobody. And Ken said, yeah, go and write the article. So I wrote the article. And I was 19 and I wrote this article. It was the first article I had accepted for print. And here it is in the, in the Speed and Power Annual, the record-breaking bluebirds. First spread was about the boat and the second spread was about the car. I'm showing you that to show that at a very young age, 19, I'd gone from small news stories to proper articles, but I couldn't have done it without being doing Bluebird. You know, so funnily enough, blue, you know, speed records helped me become an author, even though I wasn't really a speed record breaker, just a dreamer. Anyway, speed and power went bust after a while. It wasn't because I wrote for them, they just went bust. And it was swallowed up by Look and Learn magazine, if any of you remember that. There was um, all the normal kids like us, we got the Beano and the Dandy, but the posh kids, they got the Look and Learn because the, the parents would buy it. It was ed educational. This one's got an aircraft on the front, but it could so easily have Henry VIII or Joan of Arc or a combine harvester. It covered any subject you want to name. I tried when I was 19 to go full-time as a writer. I didn't apply myself enough. Still living at home with my mum and dad. But I tried again at 21 and actually made it. I became a writer. And I, I started, you know, earning a living, you know, living with my mum and dad initially. Only it cost me four quid a week keep to live at home. And I actually became a full-time writer at 21. And what's unusual about that is that I found out three years ago that I'm dyslexic. And if I'd known I was dyslexic, obviously I wouldn't have tried to be a writer. It was probably, probably the worst career you could choose as a dyslexic person. Um, but um, basically, they didn't used to diagnose it in those days. They thought I was stupid, which wasn't far from the truth, as I was stupid as well. But I was dyslexic. Now, they say that um, love is never having to say sorry. Uh, being dyslexic is always having to say sorry. Um, because you can write things down wrong and you don't realise you've done it. I sent this email to somebody the other day. See you shortly. The closing line, I actually wrote, see you shorty. <laughs> and that's how easy it is with just one letter missing. And I do this sort of thing a lot. So I have to read things very carefully. And yes, it is a miracle I became a writer, an editor. But I did have to read everything very carefully. Anyway, you can see here my early books drew very heavily on my knowledge of and my enthusiasm for aviation. Uh, now, starting in 1977, my first thing was published a properly, proper thing, not little thing. And, you know, I was writing about, you know, planes. And the way I put it is wings and wheels and engines. You know, everything had wings and wheels and engines with the books. Racing cars, rockets, missiles, spacecraft, cars. But besides the books, I wrote hundreds of magazine articles over the years that went into all sorts of subjects. I found that I'd got a knack, pre-internet, of writing about... Uh, technical subjects in a non-technical way. So in other words, I could learn enough about a subject to write about it in a way that's informative and entertaining for the public, writing about anything that's technical, how computers work, how beer is brewed, all the rest of it. So there was the books, uh, which are, you know, pretty reasonable stuff, but, you know, anyone could read them. You didn't have to have a PhD in physics to read them. But there was all the magazine articles. I ended up writing scripts for TV articles, uh, TV uh, programmes as well, documentary films. This book was Technology of the Formula One Car. Uh, I was going to team up with Jordan for that, and they had a great first season. And Louise Goodman, who handled their, handled their PR, said, yeah, Eddie, Eddie will help you. But then the second year, if you remember, with a Sassol-sponsored car, was a disaster. So Eddie sort of pulled out. Lotus were going to help me. They pulled out. And in the end, Eric broadly agreed to help. And I actually covered Fly on the Wall. I followed the complete construction, a design and construction, from a sketch to a finished racing car of this particular Lola, which was a bit of a flop of a car. But the main thing, 
thing is the techniques that were used to design and build a Grand Prix car were the same for all the Grand Prix cars. This was a big coffee table book. It sold for £22.95. And to give you an idea, writing it all, getting all the pictures and doing the index, I got a pound a book. So I don't know where the other £21.95 was going. And I got pretty disillusioned in the end, but never mind. Book for Hazelton, uh, technology of the Formula One car, went into uh, Japanese and Spanish and German, as well as English. And um, worked with people like Mario Elian and other people on this book. A lot of people helped me with the knowledge. Um, I don't know if Neil Oakley's here, but she, he helped me with this, um, with this book. With, uh, you worked for Penske in those days at Paul, uh, wrote Technology of the Champ Car. The other thing is, when you're a freelance writer, you go where the work is. You follow the work and you mine the work, the seams of work, like a miner. And I found a lovely little niece of myself in the early 80s, early in my career, the famous Eagle Comet that had gone bust in the late, late 60s was relaunched. And I found a niche for myself interviewing for Eagle Comic, most of the big sports stars of the early 80s. People like Barry Sheen, Steve Davis, Duncan Goodyear, the Olympic swimmer. I remember Joe Bugner, the boxer, Chris Bonington here, the mountaineer, Mike Hailwood, the great motorcycle racing star. And in those days, they didn't have all these middlemen and press agents and managers to get between you and the stars. Yes, I'd got the name of Eagle Comic that did open a lot of doors. But I can't help but think that nowadays it would be impossible for me, somebody like me, to get access to these people. And I got to know Mike quite well, um, went to some races with him when he staged his comeback to motorcycle racing in, in the latter, latter years of his life. Of course, Mike was killed quite young, uh, but I went to race at Silverstone with him. And, um, you know, some of these sports stars, they were looking forward to when they finished their careers. What are they going to do? They're going to write a book. They're going to become pundits. So sometimes they're interested in what I was doing. You know, how many words do you write a, a day? You know, do you use a typewriter or are you using one of these newfangled um, word processors? So it was very interesting for me uh, to find some peer respect from some of these legendary people. Uh, and, and that was really eye-opener for me. I'd re really not done very much in life uh, before that. Um, I got Seb Coe's um, home number of his flat at Loughborough University. And I did a lot of interviews with Eagle Comic. And some of you people will remember people like John Pertwee. I interviewed him for Eagle Comic. He, um, I remember him as Doctor Who at that time and Wurzel Gummidge. But, um, you know, I interviewed people like David Bellamy, Magnus Pike, um, Russ Abbott, who was a very serious kind of guy. Steven Spielberg I interviewed. Uh, Jeff Bridges, the Hollywood actor. Ridley Scott, the film director. I did loads of interviews. I sat down one day and wrote a list of all the people I interviewed one way or another over the years. It came to nearly 300 people, ranging from Buzz Aldrin right through to Tommy Cooper, I also remember very fondly. Now, before I finish this section, I just want to mention one important thing. I was going to say I'll turn the sound off, but we ain't got any sound, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, I just want to mention this book before I move on, because it's a big turning point in my life. This is all conditioning me, by the way, for speed records. Um, you know, I was working with things with engines and rockets and, and, and wings and wheels for years and years. And um, to me, the water speed record and speed records was the next logical step to go back to that. Um, shuttle book, wrote the book, uh, was at the first shuttle launch for Aircraft Illustrated. London book publisher, bless their heart, they pulled out on me. They said, the book you've written is rubbish. Uh, Osprey, they were called in London. Um, I basically took a big gamble and I published the book myself and um, got myself £36,000 in debt by 1984. And uh, I'll tell you what happened in the end in a minute. But the first shuttle launch, I'd never seen a launch before. With the press pass from NASA, I was only three and a half miles from the launch pad, which is about as close as anyone is allowed to get. Because, you know, you can see the shuttle going up from hundreds of miles away. So to be this close was extraordinary. First time NASA had flown a new rocket with, a man, with crewed crew on board. 
Uh, they always tested things unmanned normally to make sure they worked. When this big cloud of smoke came out to the left, I actually thought the shuttle had blown up on the launch pad and two guys had been killed. I was very relieved when I saw it spring clear. And to give you an idea of the energy being released, the shuttle weighs 2,000 tonnes at launch, full of fuel, because from a standing start in Florida, and within eight and a half minutes, it's crossed the Atlantic Ocean, it's over Spain, it's 170 miles up, it's in Earth orbit, and it's doing 17,500 miles an hour from a standing start. So it's extraordinary to see the shuttle uh, going up. It was utterly extraordinary. Anyway, I basically had this book that I'd written that I'd been commissioned to do. I was a so-called uh, specialist on the shuttle when I actually didn't know a lot much about it. But when you've got to write a book, you've got to learn. Uh, the publisher pulled out on me. They said, you've written a book that's like a boy's own article. They said, it's really, you've trivialised a high-tech subject. Uh, with your boy's own writing style. Well, I felt the books and magazine articles shouldn't be dry and technical. They should be lively. And I believed in the book. I'd got nothing to lose anyway. I got myself in debt and um, going through a divorce. Published the book myself. Uh, cost 20 grand to print 10,000 copies and a load of other costs. And I was very lucky, uh, but I worked very hard. The book became a bestseller. It sold over 50,000 copies, which is a hell of a lot for a so-called specialist book. And it vindicated the way that I'd written the book. Uh, but it was an important lesson in turning adversity around by taking a huge gamble, uh, a huge life lesson. And it changed me from being an author into being a publisher as well, albeit on a relatively small scale. Now, the leader of the Red Arrows, Gordon Leader John Blackwell, I'd interviewed him for Eagle Comic about a year earlier. And he, I asked him if he'd write the foreword for the book shuttle book, because they had a formation that year, the nine aircraft of the Red Arrows in the shape of the space shuttle doing a slow roll manoeuvre with the red, white and blue smoke as a tribute to NASA and the shuttle programme. And John wrote the foreword to the book. And as you can see on the right, barely recognisable now, a younger, slimmer version of me was lucky enough to fly a couple of times with the Red Arrows. And I think this was the ultimate vindication of my decision, if that was a decision, when I was young, to gravitate towards writing, because there's no way with four law levels and dyslexia that I was ever going to get to be in the RAF. There was no way I was ever going to get into the world of rocketry, the space shuttle, Tommy Cooper, Steven Spielberg, Sebastian Coe. All this came about through becoming an author. And I, I owe such a huge amount to such talent as I might have, um, which is really more about enthusiasm than talent. But obviously I've got quite good at things now because they say if you do, do something for 10,000 hours, you get good at it. And I think I've been doing it for more than 10,000 hours, so I am quite good at it. Now, this particular picture was a turning point. Do I keep doing this for the rest of my life? Which was nice, earning money and being successful. But what about speed records? They've been in the back of my mind for 16 years since I was a teenager. And I'd had a few drinks one Friday afternoon, one lunchtime. We got the magazine to bed. I'd got a magazine called Space Flight News, which we'd launched off the back of the shuttle magazine. I was earning quite a bit of money. Everything was going well. I thought, I should have another crack at record-breaking before I'm too old to try. I knew through the grapevine that Leo Villa had passed away over the years, many years earlier, but I figured Ken Norris might still be alive. I tracked him down to Bournemouth Airport, where he was at an aircraft company. I left a message with his PA, Barbara, on a Friday afternoon, and he rang me back early on a Saturday evening. And that phone call from Ken Norris was the beginning of what we now call the Quicksilver Project, although in those days, it didn't have a name. This is Ken Norris, who passed away some years ago in his 80s, the only man in history to have designed the world's fastest car and the world's fastest boat. But he had the stigma in the back of his mind that he designed the machine that Donald Campbell was killed in. 
So he's very cautious about getting involved with the new project. But gradually he got involved and drawn into it the way we all do. And he became a real uh, center point of the project. And um, the project was built around him. We formed a company 50-50. Ken's job was to design the boat. And my job was to raise the wherewithal in cash and kind to get the boat built and to drive the boat. And that's me furiously trying to look like a boffin at Southampton University in those days. Bear in mind, I'm not an engineer, but the first thing you do if you build anything that's gonna go quickly on land or in the air, or indeed on water, you test it in a wind tunnel. You can modify the design, you can chop and change, try different uh, designs, put them at different angles and see if they're stable. And if something goes wrong, you just get data that says something's gone wrong. Nobody gets kill killed. So the key to it is wind tunnel testing, and that's what we did. The project was run in secret, and we tried to form a scientific basis for a new water speed record boat. Now, I'm going to show you this short film clip again. I'll talk you through it, because we ain't got any music. Uh, showing you how speeds have gone up over the years, okay? 120, 130 years ago, nothing going much quicker than 20 or 30 miles an hour. Fast clipper ships, the early turbine-powered boats, uh, like Sir Charles Parsons, but, but by 1919, the guy on the right there, Alexander Graham Bell, the American inventor, 100 years ago, they could do 70 miles an hour on water. Then the British racing drivers got involved, people like Sir Henry Seagrave. The record kept changing hands between the Brit Brits and the Americans. It changed hands over and over again. We're up to 98 miles an hour, then we're up to 124 miles an hour by 1932 with the Americans. Lawrence of Arabia had a project, had a boat called Empire Day, ran on Lake Windermere, but he had engine overheating problems, and before he could sort it out, he was killed in his famous motorcycle accident. So Malcolm Campbell then came along, the famous racing driver and multiple holder of the land speed record. As I mentioned earlier, he broke the water speed record four consecutive times in the run-up to the Second World War, leaving it at 141 miles an hour by 1939. After the war, the jet-powered Bluebird, uh, which handled atrociously and didn't really get very far. But the first jet boat, uh, when Ma Malcolm passed away of natural causes, Donald took over. Unsuccessful, dogged by bad luck, 1948, 49, 50, 51, 52. To try and get the record back, uh, you, you've got, well, basically we lost the record to the Americans, Stanley Sayers, 1950 and 1952, 160 miles an hour, 178 miles an hour. See how the speed's going up. To try and get the record back, John Cobb, in the boat Crusader on Loch Ness, was killed with a structural failure of the bow of the boat at 200 miles an hour. Cobb, of course, was a lap record here, holder here at Brooklands, and he held the land speed record at that time. In the wake of the tragedy, Donald Campbell came along with the new boat designed by the Norris brothers and dominated for 12 years. He took the record up to 276 miles an hour, but within six months of Donald being killed, the American Lee Taylor, summer of 1967, were up to 285 miles an hour by the summer of 67, the summer of love. The Americans held the record for 10 years, and then the Australians got it for the first time. Ken, Ken Warby, Spirit of Australia, 288 miles an hour. And the following year, 1978, he went out and went 29 miles an hour quicker. And pushed the record to the speed that stands to this day of 317.6 miles an hour. If we want to bring the record back to Britain, we've got to go faster than this guy, 317.6 miles an hour. There have been two major projects on water since this time, both American, and both have resulted in a fatal accident to the driver, one in 1981 and one in 1989. Lee Taylor and then Craig Arfons. And I think the lesson that we drew from that is that the water speed record, as it's gone up over the 100 years, has reached a plateau beyond which it will not be possible to go without a fatal accident. 
unless we can employ a whole new level of science and engineering and physics. And the basis of our project is to employ a whole new level of understanding, modern methods, modern materials, and a new way of thinking to build a new boat for a new generation. We can never make it completely safe, but if we can make it safer than it was in the old days, then if it's safer, in theory, we should be able to go faster. But that's what we've got to do. We've got to beat this speed, 317.6 miles an hour. Now, we've never had a lot of money on our project, but we've come to what I call quid pro quo arrangements. I never have more than one beer before I say that. Quid pro quo, um, we do something for somebody, they do something for us, no money changes hands, and everybody's happy. In this case, we teamed up with the University of Southampton to do our wind tunnel testing, because even in those days, it was £2,000 a day to go in the wind tunnel. The Jordan team were using this tunnel in those days. They didn't have their own tunnel. Penske was using it. It was a Formula One wind tunnel. We got to use it free of charge in return for allowing small groups of students in the fourth and final year of the Master of Engineering degree course to work on our project. And their involvement with us constituted up to 40% of the marks in the fourth and final year of their course. So they got to work on an exciting project, real-life project, with a legendary engineer, Ken Norris. We got free wind tunnel testing time out of the relationship. Okay? And we come a long way with it. Um, but sadly, Ken's original design, which you can see here, did have a lot of problems. It wasn't stable. We even fitted it with canards. We, moved, we created different tail configurations. Whatever happened with it, Ken had to concede it didn't work. This started a pattern of Ken changing his mind with what he wanted. We worked our way through a huge number of different designs. And ultimately, it did become extremely frustrating for me, and it did become a strain on our our friendship and our relationship. Some of you might remember, if you know about Quicksilver in the past, we used to have it like this. This was Ken's almost a definitive idea for what he wanted eventually, when he decided what he wanted. Uh, but he never really decided what he wanted. And I think deep inside, did the accident that Donald have hold Ken back? Ken enjoyed working on a project. He put hundreds and hundreds of hours into it. But did he really want to see a guy risking his life again? My own feeling is he didn't. But this is where we were some years ago with the sponsors at the back. And you could say, with retrospect, we should have left it like that. But we moved on to other designs. Uh, I parted company with Ken, which was a sad way to end the relationship. And I know he was very upset about it. And I perhaps could have handled it better. But I couldn't wait more than 12 years uh, for a design. You know, we'd, we'd experimented a lot. And by then, I put my mortgage in, into it, and remortgaged the house, and put my pension into it. We got sponsors, and we'd gone public. We told everyone we're going to do it. You can't take money off people and go public and then not build a boat. So we started to build something. And uh, it's been a difficult project, but that's how the boat used to look. And that's how we thought it would have looked, and maybe we should have left it like that. But anyway, we have changed it, but never mind. I'm pretty happy with what we got now, which I'll show you in a minute. I'd like to make a point about these boats. They're very exotic. They come along once in a generation nowadays, if that. For all their exotic nature and for all their incredible speed, they have a lot in common with ocean liners, oil tankers, canoes pedalos, and even rubber ducks in the bath. They all start off in the water in what's called the displacement condition. As Archimedes would have told us, they're displacing their own weight in the water. In that respect, no different to a ping pong ball in the water. What makes these boats unique is that the power of the engine is such, and the design of the hull is such, that as the boat accelerates, at the beginning of a run, it'll go from the displacement condition 
which is in the water, to the planing condition, which is on the water. The reason being that water is 800 times the density of air. It's very draggy and very viscous. And the faster you go, the more the drag goes up, but more so than you would think. If you go twice as fast, you don't get twice the drag, you get four times the drag. If you go four times as fast, you get 16 times the drag. There's an exponential increase in drag as the square root of the speed. So the faster you try to go, the more the thing is slowing down. So the trick is to come out of the water. And the further out of the water you can get, the less drag there'll be and the faster you'll go. But of course, therein lies the danger. If you come out of the water too far, you go the whole hog like Donald Campbell did. And the air will get under the bow of the boat and beyond a certain angle, in Bluebird's case, three and a half degrees, the boat will go right over. And we can see in this picture of, Ken, of Donald Campbell on one of his earlier triumphs, eight years before he was killed, on Lake Mead in Nevada, he's barely in contact with the water. And we can see, in spite of the modifications that were made to Bluebird over the years to go faster and faster, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that Donald's was probably an accident that was waiting to happen. So we've done so much research, we have so much data from so many different designs. This isn't in a wind tunnel, this is a towing tank. It's a sister tank to the one that Barnes Wallace used at Teddington. This one's at um, Gosport near uh, Portsmouth, uh, what's now called Kinetic. It was called Dera in those days. The quarter mile long towing tank, we could test different models. All the white parts of the model are interchangeable. All these bits, you can chop and change the model between each run, test different shape of hull and different angles of planing surface. The model is free to move in what we call the six degrees of freedom, pitch, roll and yaw, heave, surge and sway. We can measure all of the dynamics and study at the end of each run what the boat is doing and what design works and which one doesn't, what's stable and what isn't. Besides the reams and reams of numerical data we get from the test, we get this fantastic film footage from different angles. And when you see a flash gun going off, we also get high-speed still photography from different angles. We can even mount a camera underwater, as you can see here, and using slow motion and freeze frame, we can see how much of the boat is in the water at any given speed, what's called a wetted area. These are facilities to die for that simply didn't exist on this level of sophistication in the days of John Cobb and Donald Campbell. And we're employing these modern ways of thinking, modern facilities and modern materials to try to do this differently and better and ultimately to go faster. Now the boat, rather like the driver, changed out of all recognition over the years and sadly by this time I parted company with Ken and sadly around this time Ken passed away. You can see the design is getting very near the final design. This is a different kind of model. It's not a wind tunnel model, it's not a towing tank model. It's what we call a free running model. It runs under its own power with a jet engine and radio control. It's not a toy. They cost thousands of pounds to build and hundreds of man hours. But over the years, once we've gone public, we found that we've got lots of people joining us who are volunteers from different walks of life. Model making, computing, electronics, structural engineering, propulsion, all these different skills, aerodynamics, marine engineering, marine architecture, a fabulous team of volunteers. We had three different models of different shapes of this type, and uh, people produced these models at their own expense. So again, we just didn't have the money, but other people pay paid for these things out of their own pockets. And that's the still of that particular model, one of several, uh, 
planing on a private lake near Telford. And I'm sorry, but you'll have to imagine all kinds of really exciting, stirring jet engine music, so, uh, jet engine noise, so you can almost smell the kerosene. But this is some film of that particular model running. If I ever come back, I shall run this with sound. Um, so the model, you're testing the model. I hope you get the idea that you test models in wind tunnels, towing tanks. Scale models, if it goes wrong, nobody gets killed. You can learn so much from scale models. But eventually I learned that we'd built a huge armada of test models. We'd got years and years of data. And you have to draw a line somewhere. Ken Norris told me at the beginning of the project that if we're ever lucky enough to get a record, I must expect it to take 10 years. If he told me it was going to take well over 20 years, that I would outlive my mentor and be carrying on without him, and that the project would bankrupt me as it did in 2009 for seven and a half months when the recession hit, I probably would never have started it. But of course, you start these things with high hopes, you get drawn in, and I've watched my career gradually go downhill while this project has gone uphill. And uh, that's a price worth paying if it works at the end, which I think it will. But what I learned is that you have to stand up to engineers. If you let engineers go on and on forever, they will go on and on forever. They'll keep experimenting, chopping and changing, redesigning. And I said, look, I got enough confidence after 19 years of working in our spare time. Look, let's make the, the final design because the ultimate test model is a one-to-one -one scale model. It's the real thing. Start testing at a low speed and start building up the speed. So we committed to building the real thing. And this is the final design. Now, we've got a lot of great guys. Uh, some people call them buffins, even me, when they're not looking. Uh, but actually, they're very highly skilled engineers. Mike Green is the former chief aerodynamicist at British Aerospace at Woodford. He designed the wings for the Nimrod Maritime Reconnaissance Aircraft and the wings for the BAE 146 airliner. And he's retired now from British Aerospace, but he gives us all, a lot of his time free of charge. This guy is a marine engineer. If you had to pay for him, he's £1,500 a day. Mike Coulthard, again, he's given us many, many days and weeks of his time free of charge. And what Mike's looking at in the wind tunnel, this is at Salford University, where we moved up to after Ken and I parted company. Mike's looking at data from a physical model in a wind tunnel with real air moving over it. The other Mike is looking at a computer model, because now you can model boats and cars and planes in a computer, virtual engineering, and using computational fluid dynamics, CFD, you can use supercomputing and flow millions of particles of air over it and water under it. This relies on supercomputing. We've had big companies like IBM come in and help us. And this is a picture showing the air pressure distribution around the whole of the boat at 350 miles an hour. So we can, nowadays we can make the invisible air visible using highly advanced computer techniques. Now, as we're getting into the last segment of the talk, I do want to bring the Bluebird story full circle because we saw at the beginning the dynasty of 45 years from 1922 to 1967 that forged the legend of the Campbells and Bluebird. When Donald Campbell was killed in 1967, Royal Navy divers made stupendous efforts to recover his body, but they couldn't find Donald. They did find the wreck of the boat, but it was left in 145 feet of water, and over the years it gradually sank into the silt at the bottom of the lake, and its whereabouts became unknown. Decades later, this marine salvage specialist, Bill Smith and his team, from Newcastle on Tyne, spent four years using modern, modern, modern sonar equipment and was successful not only in locating but in raising the wreck of Bluebird. The boat that had disappeared from the world in grainy black and white Pathy newsreel footage re-emerged in full Technicolor in 2001. As you can see, the hull had survived remarkably intact, the engine was still on its mountings, but the front of the boat where Donald was was violently ripped apart in the split second when the boat hit the water. Remarkably, several weeks later, 
the team were successful in locating and raising Donald Campbell's body. Without going into detail, Donald had been preserved on the bottom of the lake in the freezing cold conditions, well away from where anybody had looked in 1967. He'd been thrown through the side of the boat, and he was well away from where, where anyone thought he would be, be when they searched for him originally. Without going into detail, he was still wearing his bluebird, pale blue bluebird overalls. He had his St. Christopher's medal on, and he had small chains zipped into the pockets of his trousers. This meant there would be the most strange and surreal situation, a funeral for Donald Campbell, because I'm sure most of you remember over the decades since he was killed, people used to say, oh yeah, they never found his body, did they? Well, now there was a body, now there was going to be a funeral. In spite of torrential rain over the preceding 24 hours, over 3,000 people came out to pay their last respects in the church and the churchyard in the village of Coniston on the shores of the lake where Donald met his death. It was indeed, as I've said, a most strange and surreal day for those of us who were there. But what made it doubly surreal is that this funeral took place a day after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 on the Twin Towers in New York and on the Pentagon in Washington. And we all knew, didn't we, that the world would never be the same again after 9-11. We were raw from seeing those news flash images of the airliners flying into the towers, and the towers coming down, and the very next day we were at this equally numbing and surreal event, a funeral for Donald Campbell. Now, of course, when Donald was killed, I was 11-year-old, I didn't know Donald. But I did know and do know, I haven't met her for a while now, but I know Gina, his only child. This is at the graveside. And next to Gina in the blue is Tonya, Don, Donald's third wife, his widow, the Belgian cabaret singer, Tonya Bern Campbell. And Gina asked me before the funeral, along with others, to play a part in the final proceedings that could be done for Donald because she wanted people whose lives had been changed by Donald's life and achievements to play those final parts in laying Donald to rest. And this picture was sent to me a few years ago. Obviously, I didn't realise it was taken at the, time, at the time. But in the torrential rain, the day after the terrorist attacks of 9-11, I was shoveling soil onto Donald Campbell's coffin. And I remember thinking to myself, how could I ever imagine when I was an 11-year-old boy when Donald Campbell was killed, that 34 years later, I'd actually be helping to bury the man. So a most strange and surreal day, not just 9-11, but 9-12-2001. Now, our new boat, Quicksilver, is 50% bigger than Bluebird and 50% heavier than Bluebird. But it has over, well, well over twice the power of Bluebird. It's the biggest and heaviest boat ever to contest the water speed record, but it's also by far the most powerful. It's 40 feet long from bow to stern. It's 11 feet wide at its widest point, and 10 feet high to the tip of the tail fin. It weighs 3.5 tonnes, but its Rolls-Royce Bay turbofan engine develops five and a half tons of thrust, or 11,000 pounds of thrust, or 10,000 horsepower. We like to think that the boat embodies all the best principles of previous successful British water speed record boats. It learns the lessons from the Bluebird tragedy and marries all that to modern technology, modern materials, new ways of thinking. Although ironically, it is very like Bluebird, it's just a lot bigger and more powerful, and we have the weight distribution much more towards the front, which we think will be safer. We're not going to have a whole lot of time for questions at the end, so I'll just mention, I sit over here, we have a main hull with a trimaran. The main hull has the engine, the fuel tank, the vertical tail fin for directional stability, the bow section and the fuel tank, and on either side we've got what we call sponsons. They're like floats that um, keep the boat stable at high speed. They're like the... Um, 
stabilizers on a kiddie's bicycle. So I actually sit on this side, and on the other side, we have an engineer who helps me to, mod uh, to monitor the instruments. And it's the first time there's been a two-seater water speed record boat uh, since the early 1950s. Of course, being a, mo a modern boat, we have computer equipment on board, but the rules state, state the boat must be driven by a human being. It can't be driven by remote control. We've got companies like Siemens who've donated tens of thousands of pounds worth of equipment that can measure all of the things that are going on, on board, and we can analyse data at the end of each run. Lots of companies, big and small, have helped us. We have two rudders at the back, and this is a demonstrator. We have developed a fly-by-wire steering system where there's no direct mechanical linkage between my steering wheel and the rudders. All the signals are carried electronically, fly-by-wire. So I'm still driving it, but everything's done with electronic inputs. And this has taken a lot of work to develop. And without boring everyone with science, we do a lot of calcs. This is the drag uh, on the rudder. and Because uh, every time you turn the rudder, it, it creates drag and slows you down. So we have to calculate the drag at different speeds with the different angles that we might turn it at. And this is uh, working out what the forces are on the rudder, because if you put too much um, force on the rudder, it'll break off, or the rudders, then you can't steer. So we've got to design it so it'll be strong enough, but it hasn't got to become heavy. So we do a lot of calcs, and a lot of clever people doing these calcs, not me. Um, a few years ago, we put everything we had in hock. We raised 20 grand and we bought this complete Buccaneer aircraft surplus from the MOD. These things cost millions of pounds new. We got it for 20 grand. It had virtually no hours on the clock. We didn't fly it, but we used to run it up and down the main runway. I used to get in the cockpit and go up and down the main runway at Bournemouth Airport at 90 knots, 100 miles an hour, where Ken Norris was based. And it meant that while the boffins were working endlessly on the design of the boat and deciding what they wanted, it meant that some of us could get hands-on with engines and real hardware, you know? got two engines, one on one side and one on the other. It gave us one engine for the boat and one for use as a spare. That is one of the engines taken out. We've got a single engine boat, the whole taking shape in high tensile steel. It goes way off to the left here. And that was made for us by uh, British Steel and BOC Gases. And um, to our design, and the engine in it strapped down with steel cables at Puntingthorpe Proving Ground doing full power engine tests. The main hull now is 85% complete. We've had companies like uh, Interleven, a refrigeration company, they put £65,000 in cash in. We've had grants, we've had money from different people, we've raised money, uh, supporters club and what have you. Radshape in Birmingham have done tens of thousands of pounds worth of making components for us. We design them and other companies build them for us and gradually the boat's taking shape. That's some parts being built uh, for the whole at the moment. This is the engine on its mountings. The engine weighs one tonne, but it develops five and a half tonnes of thrust. The fuel tank is a full Formula One spec bag tank. And the company that designed that for us, Advanced Fuel Systems, they said if, if we'd charge you for this job to design and build it, it would have been £17,000. They donated that free of charge. And you could hit that with a high-velocity bullet when it's full of fuel and it wouldn't explode or catch fire. It has a fuel pump inside it and all kinds of clever gizmos inside it. But that's the fuel pump, it's about the size of a football, and it delivers fuel, which is kerosene, to the engine at the rate of one litre per second at full throttle. So we wouldn't win any fuel economy prizes. But we only run under power for three miles, and then we start slowing down. We have an emergency fuel shut-off valve in the system, that if we get a problem with anything, uh, this system will automatically shut the engine down, or if we get a fire on board, we'll starve it of fuel. And all these parts have been developed specially, and many, many others by companies, large and small, as their contribution to the project. And plus, we've got a great team of volunteers helping us. 
Now, to finish off, we're currently building the bow of the boat. It's eight and a half feet long, and the structure actually goes backwards to form a shell over the main high tensile steel space frame. And when that's done, we can float the boat on the water for first trials. Again, this is using supercomputing to understand the forces on the hull so that we can design the structure properly. And this is the boat as it is now. And we built the first part of the bow is the four deck. It's eight and a half feet long. It's a sandwich construction, very similar to a Grand Prix car. Uh, it's a sandwich panel construction of carbon fibre and structural foam. But you can see the boat is really taking shape. Uh, and what you do when you build that, by the way, you start off with a mould. This is Bill Woodhouse from the uh, Bloodhound, the Thrust SSC team. We've got a lot of very experienced guys. That's a mould. And then you put this thing in a vacuum bag with carbon fibre and you gradually build the thing up. Um, it's quite a complex process. A lot of work involved in making these very strong but lightweight parts. But that's the foredeck. When we finish the rest of the bow, all this other area here will be filled in and all this will be filled in and we'll be able to put the boat on the water for trials. So it's not a wind tunnel model anymore, it's not a computer doodle, it is a real boat taking shape. And as I said before, we've come too far to stop, but we haven't done enough to finish. But we want to finish the thing off. If we continue to get support and people continue to believe in it, we can finish it off. What we're doing at the moment to build the um, bow section, well, actually, you build a pattern made out of wood. This isn't the boat, but it's a pattern. This is only part of it. This is um, a pattern maker up in Newcastle who did all this work free of charge to our design. They built a huge pattern, three times bigger than this, and what they delivered to us was that. That's the bottom of the boat upside down. And if you can imagine, when we've finished this and put all the materials on it, uh, carbon fibre, Kevlar, balsa wood, structural foam, and you turn it the other way up and put it onto that, you've almost got a finished boat, if you can imagine it as a big airfix kit. We've been using Kevlar. We've had a company who's woven this Kevlar specially for us, thousands of pounds worth. We're using balsa wood. We've had a company in Switzerland donate a huge amount of very highly engineered balsa wood to us. And we're building the outer shell of the boat now on that wooden pattern. And this is the work going on at the minute a guy called David Johnson. I was talking to him earlier this afternoon. He's a real specialist. He's the only guy in our team that can do this sort of stuff. It's really advanced uh, layup of composite materials. And we've formed our own composites workshop at a secret location in Lincolnshire where we're doing this work. And that's Bill Woodhouse, who was uh, the guy who built the whole back end of the Thrust, um, uh, Thrust SSC car, uh, who is helping with that work. Um, well, this is using vacuum bags and uh, yeah, a lot of techie stuff that none of us can do apart from David Johnson. We only help him out. He's the clever guy at the minute. Boffins, you met earlier on, Mike Coulthard and Mike Green. This is another one of the guys, Mark Evans. These guys are marine engineers. He's an aer aerodynamicist and he's a structural engineer, Simon. And they all give us time as and when they can. And we've got about seven or eight other people who help us with the design and all the clever stuff. Uh, before I go, I just want to mention our supporters club because uh, I'd like some of you to join it. And that's why I go around doing talks all over the country. Everybody who joins our club gets one of these certificates with their name on. Or if you want to buy one for somebody else, I can give one as a present. But basically, um, we've set aside an area on the boat for everyone's name to go on it. Not microfilm size, but proper half-inch characters. And everyone gets a certificate... Everyone gets their name on the boat when we paint it in the metallic silver colour scheme. And everybody gets their name on our website. Anyone who's got a company, which some people have, we'll put a link from our website to yours. And the club, it's not like a golf club or 
Brooklands, where you pay every year. Uh, it's, an, it's a one-off fee of £95. If anybody wants to join our club, and I hope some of you will, uh, we've got um, 470 people now who joined. It's £95. Uh, it used to be 395 I thought, what if we make it cheaper? We'll get more members. We have to get four times more members to make it worthwhile and more. And uh, we're doing that at the moment. So uh, I don't sign people up on the night. I think it's a bit tacky. But I'll take your number and give you a call. If you want to join the club, come and see me. And we'll sort it out later on. I don't tend to sign people up on the night. I think it's tacky to, tacky to do that. Um, but give us your number and I will give you a ring and tell you. Sign you up, basically, to the club. Okay? And we do these events from time to time. We haven't done one for a while, but we've done 65 events for club members. Chance to see the boat take shape and meet team members and be part of it. That's a certificate. That was a company called Radio Systems, and I signed them all. And they come in a mounting board ready for framing and all that. And that's, you see what they look like when they're finished. So that's our supporters club. And just as a sort of promotion, I mentioned earlier David Delara, who helped me make all these films and some other films that we haven't got time, time for. He donated very kindly this fabulous coffee table book called The Unobtainable. Uh, loads of pictures and text about Sir Malcolm and Donald Campbell. And he donated some of these books to help us raise money. I am selling them. They're £60 in the shops so that we can't buy them anymore. Uh, but we're selling them for £30. If anybody wants one, Jeremy will be selling them at the back and I'll be with him. £30 each. And the book is hundreds of pages, a lot of, lot of fantastic pictures. And it has in the back a DVD that's never been shown on television called Remembering Donald. Um, so I'd recommend the book to you. The book is free if you're serious about joining the corporate club. But if you want to buy the book, we bought some with us. It's 30 quid. Um, we're going to go for the record on Coniston Water. The only lake in Britain has a bylaw structure that allows us to break the legal speed limit on British lakes of 10 miles an hour. <laughs> we will have, in theory, a legal right-of-way at 350 miles an hour. How long is it going to take? Two years? It might take longer. I hope it doesn't take too much longer. Um, if we stop, it definitely won't happen. If we carry on, it will happen. So we're pressing on, and I think we're getting close to the critical mass that we need to finish the boat. A good storytelling technique. Finish where you started with dyslexia. This is a text that I sent a while back. Somebody sent me um, in the team a technical report, and I wrote a few words, and I said, I will look at it tomorrow. And this is what I sent. I will look at it tomorrow. <laughs> That's the end of my presentation. And thank you for your attention. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Nigel McKnight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank and you. you're very welcome. Thank you. Um, now, I'm sure, as Tim put the lights up, there are some questions. I'm sure that... Some of you have got... Someone has to be first, OK? As ever. Thank you. I hope you've got that all written down. <laughs> yeah. uh, hi, Nigel. Uh, thanks for a very interesting talk. You've been planted there to ask a question. <laughs> Not quite. I mean, no, no, he's always got a question. I always have one. <laughs> um, yeah. What sort of time scale are you working to? to and I know it's probably a bit open-ended at this stage. It's hard, this stage, I, I think two years. Where do you think you might be, years, we'll see you on the water, you know? Um, if things went well, we could, we could get it on the water in two years. Um, but, but they don't always go well. Um, it's tough sometimes. This is one of the frustrations I've had a, a team of volunteers. They're great people, but you can't bang the desk when it doesn't happen. And I rang you know, one of the guys today, and 
it's a little while since he's been able to work on it because he's so busy and it can get frustrating. Sometimes you can get a chunk of work done every month on, those, on that layup work and now we've gone three months with nothing. Um, and that's really frustrating. But, you know, unless you can pay a couple of million more than we've got, you can't do it any other way. Um, but I think we, we, it's realistic we can still do it. Uh, I hope it'll be two years. Uh, it could be longer. I hope it isn't. Um, but that's what I tell myself. Because if you haven't got the target, then you, you just keep going on and on. I mean, that's the difficult thing about it. If you're doing a Grand Prix, if you're Formula One, you've got to be there because the race is going to happen whether you're there or not. And the America's Cup and all that, you've got to be there. With or a speed record like this, you stage the event. So in theory, you can just keep slipping it. And that's the trouble. You, you've got to really have a date and try and stick with it. But I sort of answered your question two years, I hope. Another I, question, I've said maybe. that before. Sorry? Is that to be on the water? Or to... On the water. And then we have to test it. Another question, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, thanks very much. Brilliant talk. The, you mentioned, obviously, the element of danger. Have you covered that? I mean, I'm no doubt the, the pods that you're all going to be in are going to be carbon fibre. Um, it's not going to crash, but you, do you have something in, in lieu yeah. of something going it, wrong? <laughs> the rules have changed over the years. You know, in Donald Campbell's day, there was virtually no rules. And what's changed a bit now is there are quite a few rules but they're not so much about the boat. They're just about the safety environment. They have a rule about um, a deformable, you know, cockpit protective structure. But it won't protect somebody at 200 miles an hour, 300 miles an hour. Um, I'm sceptical about the design, which I shouldn't really say that, but the rules. Um, I don't think they will do the job as well as people think. No one's had a big accident with a water speed record boat and this kind of... Uh, thing, but um, when we do the initial trials, we won't have one. We'll run it without. And when we go for the record, we'll we'll, we'll fit one. Um, but the rules do specify uh, uh, approved by the governing body, the UIM, which is like the equivalent of the FIA, in, but for motor motor records or m marine records, there is a stipulated, um, you know. But it's not going to protect you at the, these sorts of speeds. Um, I don't believe at all, but that's the rule, so I've answered your question all right. I mean, yeah, there's always danger with it. There's always going to be danger with it. As in all these things. Another question, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yeah. Yes, sir, hold on. Till I, I won't take on. too many, because I love taking questions, but I always think that... I no, I'll, I'll, um, I'll stop them, don't worry. <laughs> I like to quit when I'm ahead. <laughs> Hello, Nigel. Hello. Um, you... Isn't it true that Kim Warby is uh, sort of sidestepping the UIM because he reckons that you cannot design, as you say, a structure that's just survivable at three or 400 mile an hour? So he's yeah. not actually going for a UIM record? Yeah, all right. Well, that's controversial. Um, yeah, I'll come out and say it then. We, we might not be either. Um, I think that if we can do it within the rules and get a, a proper accredited record, we definitely will try and do that. But if we think we can't or we don't want to or it's not going to be enough or it's going to compromise the design, then we won't. I think, you know, ultimately, uh, and it may not then be approved by the governing body, but it'll still be the fastest record and uh, it'll still be in the Guinness Book of Records. Uh, but I think the speeds have gone up so much now, there's a limit to what you can do for safety. It doesn't mean you don't have any safety, but I think there's a limit to what you can do. Uh, to me, the ultimate safety in these boats is not what happens if you have an accident it's too late then. It's the work you do before. It's all the research that you do to try and get the design right in the first place. 
I remember, you know, name dropping, I interviewed one of the guys from the first shuttle launch, um, Bob Crippen, one of the two guys on board. And I said to Crip, you know what, you know, some of the tiles came off that protected at re-entry on the first flight. And luckily they weren't from mission critical areas. If it had been from underneath, it would have burnt up on re-entry like Columbia did later on. Uh, but, um, and he said, look, you know, he said, we put the work, you know, we didn't rehearse spacewalk. We had no way of repairing the tiles if there was any damage in on orbit. He said, all the effort we put into designing things right in the first place and not designing so you could fix it if it went wrong. And I think that quite impressed me in a way. Sounds a bit scary, but you do all your work before your first flight. And then you, you, you shouldn't need all these fallbacks for safety. Thank you. One, uh, one last question, maybe from me. We've talked about the boat and the condition of it and the design. How are you going to get yourself psyched up to do Yeah. That? It's more like not just psyched up, but slimmed down. Um, <laughs> well, you've got a bit of time. I'm too, too stone overweight at the moment. Spend too much time behind a desk and making phone calls and doing talks like this and having a big meal and a couple of beers or one beer. Um, I'm pretty psyched up. I mean, I've spent all this time doing the job. I've obviously got older, and uh, that can lead to people saying, you're too old now, but I don't think that I am. Um, to me, the, the, my whole focus is on getting the thing finished. To answer your question, Steve, and I think when we get it nearer to being finished, I can focus more on myself. Um, I used to do quite a lot to keep myself in good shape, uh, but then, you know, the work really needs to go into the boat, because without the boat, it doesn't matter what shape I'm in, it's not going to happen. So I think I come, I come last and the boat comes first. I think I'll be all right, but you know, if I do a bad job in the low speed trials, I have to accept that, you know, my little dream is over and, and it's now become much bigger than me. Uh, it's, it's about the team and about the project. So I'll step to one side, but I'm certainly not gonna step to one side before I've had a try. And, um, and I'm hoping to get a book out of it at the end. Um, that's the very least I expect from it. Well, we wish you the very best of luck. Nigel McKnight. Thank you. Okay, just while we plug the uh, technology in to do the raffle. And uh, as we say, the books will be for sale at the back of the room. So if you are interested, I'm sure Nigel will sign as well. So thank you very much. Okay, Tim, first one.